tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape. Escape. Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Adventure, adventure, adventure. Adventure in the Time of the Anthropocene, with me, Jake Smith. The broadcast of Escape on November 5th, 1950, begins with an introductory segment that's unique in the seven-year run of the series. Today, Escape brings you one of the most unusual and terrifying stories of recent years. It is a story of such scope that the producers of Escape, in order to dramatize its full impact... We'll present it in two episodes. The unusual and terrifying story that required this special treatment was George R. Stewart's novel, Earth Abides. And this is Escape's only two-part episode. Earth Abides is a good place to end this podcast because it's the kind of story that's all about endings, apocalyptic endings. Apocalyptic narratives ask us to align the moment-by-moment action in a story with the long rise and fall of human civilization. They also challenge us to imagine a more-than-human or post-human environment. Apocalyptic narratives can be oppositional and iconoclastic, painting a horrifying picture of the future in order to spur action in the present. As we'll see, George Stewart's vision of a dark future in Earth Abides isn't particularly progressive. But Escape's adaptation of it is still worth hearing as an example of an audio drama that enacts both an ecological and an infrastructural disposition. George Stewart's interest in the infrastructure and ecology of a post-human world makes it resemble Alan Wiseman's best-selling book, The World Without Us, from 2007. Like Earth Abides, Wiseman's book asks readers to imagine a world from which humans have suddenly disappeared. I just suggest that something has happened that has taken all of us away before we've had a chance to wreak any more havoc on the environment. But we're gone and everything else remains intact, to what extent could it cover up all of our traces? How would it reinvade the spaces that we have been occupying? How would it deal with all the stuff that we left behind? Stuff ranging from materials that we have created to our huge cities to all this carbon that we've pumped up our chimneys. Both books take a view of the present from the perspective of the future which is also the way people talk about the Anthropocene. The argument that the Anthropocene should be considered a new geological epoch rests on pinpointing evidence of human alteration of the planet 
that could be found in the geological record by hypothetical aliens who arrive on the Earth sometime in the distant future. In previous podcasts, we've encountered some of the candidates for the location of the Golden Spike that would mark the onset of the Anthropocene. Radioactive fallout from nuclear explosions. The transportation of species around the world in ships ballast. Mass coral bleaching. And the ecological transformations that accompany the plantation economy. Earth Abides depicts other aspects of human society that will endure in the geological record long into the future. Mid-century megacities, interstate highway systems, suspension bridges, hydroelectric dams, and electrical power grids. When listeners first heard Earth Abides when it was broadcast in 1950, this tale of apocalypse was probably understood in relation to the threat of nuclear war. Earth Abides sounds different in an era of environmental crisis, less a prophetic warning about possible future scenarios, and more a hallucinatory account of the present as cataclysmic weather events become part of our normal routine, social infrastructures weaken, and many species struggle for life on a human-disturbed Earth. So, our experience of apocalypse is changing in the era of global warming, and so is our experience of adventure. Definitions of adventure have tended to emphasize a hero's movement away from a safe, familiar place to travel to a dangerous, unknown territory. In previous podcasts, we've seen how those dynamics have reinforced the project of colonialism and how some stories can expand that terrain by shifting the action to indoor and potentially toxic environments. Stories about life after an apocalyptic event, like Earth Abides, extend the toxic zone to encompass the whole world and present a hero who moves through a familiar landscape that's become radically strange. That kind of adventure suits the era of the Anthropocene, when critics argue that we now inhabit a fundamentally different, unfamiliar, and more dangerous planet. Adventures have tended to depict characters who are displaced from their usual environment. But how does that story need to change when we can no longer assume a usual environment? How can adventure stories address an experience of displacement without moving, as when extreme weather events leave a community stranded in a place that's been stripped of the very things that made it inhabitable? In this final podcast, we'll listen adventurously to Escape's apocalyptic adventure, and our goal is to train our ears to hear new frequencies in old stories so that they become lessons in how we might best cultivate life in the ruins.
you should awake some morning, tomorrow morning, let's say, if you should wake to a man-dead world where virtually all of human life had been dissolved from the face of the earth, leaving behind only buildings, bridges, machines, if you should awake to such a world tomorrow morning, what would you do? Where would you go? These questions open the escape adaptation of Earth Abides. As the story begins, Isherwood Williams is doing fieldwork for his graduate thesis in ecology. You heard that right. The hero of this high adventure is a graduate student in ecology. That rather quirky choice of protagonist makes a lot more sense when we look at the author George Stewart's body of work. Stewart gained national notoriety with the publication of the novel Storm in 1941. As the title suggests, the hero of that story is a storm, and Stewart charts its life and death over 12 days as it impacts people, animals, and infrastructure. The book has a more-than-human scope that signaled early on with an opening image of the Earth as seen from space. We can hear that performed for radio on an adaptation made by the CBS Radio Workshop in 1956 and narrated by escape regular William Conrad. Steadily, the great sphere of the Earth spun upon its axis and moved in its unvarying course around the sun. From this planetary opening, Stuart zooms in to a hemispheric level and then to a particular stream of cold air. Cold air from the tundras of Siberia had met warm air from the coral atolls of the Southern Ocean. The result is a storm that moves eastward to the Pacific coast of the United States. And there, it's first detected by a junior meteorologist at the Weather Bureau in San Francisco who has a habit of bestowing female names on large storms. He gives this Pacific storm the name Mariah. This one shall be Mariah. This detail in Stewart's novel was the inspiration for the song They Call the Wind Mariah in the Broadway show Paint Your Wagon from Even more significant, Stewart's junior meteorologist inspired the now common practice of giving names to large storms in media coverage. We might say that Stewart's novel has come to play a significant role in our everyday experience of the climate crisis. The 2017 hurricane season had 17 named storms, among them Harvey, Irma, Jose, and Maria, which devastated the island of Puerto Rico. Tonight, Maria's direct hit, devastating Puerto Rico. Roofs peeled from buildings, debris flying. The emergency management director saying the entire island is destroyed. 100% of Puerto Rico now without power. Everywhere you look, down power lines like these, which stretch right across this vessel. 
Storm was a bestseller and Book of the Month Club selection, and Stewart followed it with the novel Fire in 1948, which gives a similar day-by-day account of a wildfire in the American West. Among the fans of Stewart's ecological bestsellers of the 1940s was Walt Disney, who invited the author to his Hollywood studio on several occasions and produced television versions of both Storm and Fire. Like every major fire, it was given a code name. From here on, this monster would be known as Jeremiah. We can see then why it makes sense that Stewart made the hero of his next book, Earth Abides, an ecologist. My name is Isherwood Williams. I was a student of ecology. I was in the Northern California wilderness gathering specimens of rock, plant, and animal life. I was alone and had been for a month. Climbing up to a sharp ledge one day, I felt a sudden sharp pain in my extended right hand. I withdrew it under reflex and looked up, and there, a foot above my head, I saw him, a rattler, coiled, ready to strike again. After being bitten by a rattlesnake, Williams falls unconscious and sleeps for several days. When he wakes up, he goes to the nearest town, Hudsonville, but finds it deserted. The familiar houses, stores, taverns, but no one on the streets. A hen scratched quietly in the dust. A lonely dog was howling somewhere. Hey! Silence. Deathly silence. He hears nothing but static on the car radio. There wasn't a single radio station still in operation. And no one comes to greet him when he blasts the car horn. (sighs) (sighs) Then he finds an old newspaper. It was dated a week before. I read it through twice. Whole cities had perished. Medical centers, bodies. Doctors, nurses, burial crews hard at work, and then they too had fallen and died. The United States, the world, the stagnant flesh pool of death. So the apocalyptic event in Earth Abides is a pandemic. If a killing type of virus strain should suddenly arise by mutation, it could, because of the rapid transportation in which we indulge nowadays, be carried to the far corners of the Earth and cause the death of millions of people. This was not Escape's only episode to address that topic. Escape also broadcast a version of Jack London's The Scarlet Plague, which tells the story of a strange malady that makes its victims die with a fiery red rash. The characters in the story listen to radio broadcasts that describe how the disease starts on the East Coast. Up to this hour, the official death toll in greater New York is 321 persons. We return you now to dance time. Then spreads rapidly around the country. Outbreaks are reported in Europe. A bulletin has just been handed to me from London. The Scarlet Plague is raging in Europe. And eventually, widespread social collapse. Unbelievable. At the moment, we are waiting for word from Washington naming the new president of the United States to replace Edmund C. Dover, who died on the Senate platform while attempting to conduct... Yeah, what's the use? Tales of pandemic may have resonated with Escape's audience in the 1950s because they amplified anxieties about communist agents who were described as viruses infiltrating the nerve centers of the state. 
For listeners today, the anxiety produced by pandemic stories like Earth Abides and the Scarlet Plague is less likely to be linked to communist espionage than to climate change. Recent outbreaks of malaria, Lyme disease, Zika, and dengue fever have all been partially attributed to global warming. This is because higher temperatures prolong the breeding season for the mosquitoes that carry disease and boost their rates of reproduction. We think that climate change will perhaps make it harder to control virus outbreaks in the future. Why? The Aedes aegypti, the mosquito that transmits the Zika virus, is sensitive to temperature. The warmer it is, the faster mosquitoes develop from egg to adult. And the warmer it is, the less time it takes for a mosquito, having bitten an infected human, to transmit the virus to another human. Areas of the world that were once considered hostile to mosquitoes could soon become friendlier environments. The period of time when conditions are ideal for disease-carrying mosquitoes has increased since the 1980s for many American cities, in some cases by as much as a month. These facts remind us that climate change is a global health issue, not only because of its effect on mosquitoes, but through the contaminated water that accompanies rising sea level. Experts warn the floodwater left by Harvey, or any natural disaster, can pose a health risk because it's often contaminated with chemicals, toxic waste, and sewage. The water can also carry harmful bacteria, which can lead to nausea, fever, or muscle aches if it's accidentally ingested. The survivors of climate-related disease outbreaks, hurricanes, and flooding embark upon dangerous adventures without moving as the environment changes around them. Isherwood Williams speculates about why he survived the pandemic. I wondered how I had survived. Perhaps the snake venom had counteracted the virus, perhaps the the clean wilderness who could save. He wonders who else may have survived and travels to his home in San Francisco. San Francisco, the mute, dead city of San Francisco, a naked forest of concrete with its empty streets, its ghosts of newspapers blowing across alleys. With nothing left for him in San Francisco, he sets off on a trip across the country to see who or what remains. Earth Abides is at its best during the first of its two parts, because it's here that we get some of Stewart's keen observations on infrastructure. Stewart's earlier novel, Storm, paid close attention to networks of shipping, electrical grids, telephone lines, and road services, as each was disrupted by Mariah. In some scenes, Stewart depicts networks as contact zones with non-human environments. In Storm, we get a detailed history of a cedar tree in the Sierra Nevada mountains. In 1579, the same year Sir Francis Drake landed on the coast of California, a cedar sapling sprouted on the lip of a ravine far up in the Sierra Nevada. And in 1789, a half century before the first immigrant let his wagons down the canyon walls with ropes, a windstorm toppled it. But last fall, a chipmunk burrowing beneath it dislodged a pound or so of gravel, and the weight of Mariah's snow finished the job. Now the log begins to roll, slide sideways, 
upends and drops over the canyon's edge. The tree falls and breaks a telephone line. Operator? Hello, operator. This is the operator. I've just been cut off from New York. I'm sorry, sir. The sorry's not enough. What's the matter with you people? Hold the line, sir. Company as big as yours, you'd think they'd give better service. In scenes like this, Stuart brings normally imperceptible networks to our attention and reveals how they intersect with the lives of trees, chipmunks, and storms. When Isherwood Williams drives across the country in Earth Abides, we get some similar infrastructural vignettes. I left San Francisco and started across what had once been the United States, Route 66, through the giant Southwest. A road is blocked by a fallen tree. Sprinklers operate in an abandoned park. In Tulsa, the sprinklers were still going in the park. I stopped. A jukebox plays records in an empty bar. The bottles were stacked neatly, bar rag over the rack, and a broken jukebox, blazing in blues and reds, singing its song to the vacant, varnished tables. This journey culminates in New York City. Three days later, I pulled up the Pulaski Skyway, crossed George Washington Bridge, came to Manhattan, the splendid, slow-decaying corpse of Fifth Avenue, the sable mink in the windows, the silly traffic lights changing color at naked intersections, Manhattan, soulless and dead. Stretched out between its rivers, the city will remain for a long time. Stone and brick, concrete and asphalt, glass, time deals gently with them. A window pane loosens, vibrates, breaks in a gusty wind. Lightning strikes, loosens the tiles of a cornice. The shade trees on the avenues die in their shallow pockets. Bats fly from the 59th floor. City dies slowly. It's here that Earth Abides most resembles Alan Wiseman's The World Without Us which presents its own eerie images of a post-human New York City. In New York, I show how it starts with a subway system, which is underneath the water table and requires electric pumps going constantly to keep those subways dry. If humans were not there maintaining the pumps, the tunnels would fill with water, and the posts that hold up the streets would eventually corrode and collapse and the streets would turn into rivers. Water will seek its natural level and it will begin to undo the firm foundations of buildings. And just imagine a skyscraper in New York, waterlogged at its foundations, which it was not built to be. And when that unstable skyscraper gets hit by hurricane force winds and topples, just like a big tree toppling in the forest, it's going to take down a lot of the smaller ones all around it. And eventually our cities without us would be lying in ruins and within a few hundred years we'd have mature forests. That would be the most prominent features. Williams sees smoke rising from a chimney and discovers two survivors. 
I drove to the house, a small house, and knocked on the door. I heard footsteps. When the door opened, I saw a little bald man with a broad smile holding a handful of playing cards. Milk Carson. Uh, how do you do? Come on in. You're in time for supper. Well, thanks. I just ate. Uh, this is uh, Mrs. Carson. How are you? Won't you sit down? Oh, thanks. The Carsons are living by scavenging in the vacant stores of the city, and Milt is particularly proud of his radio television set. Look here. Isn't that a beauty? Oh, the... The television set, yes. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a combination radio-television set radio player. I'll bet it even does the washing. It took us two days to get it up the steps from the radio store. I always wanted a set like that. Yes, but there's nothing on the air. Sir, always wanted a set like that. Jen, there you are. I owe you $10,000. Well, give it to me tomorrow. The Carsons invite Ish to stay with them. But he declines. Hey, where are you going? I've got to get started. Well, where? There ain't no place to go. Lots of luck. Well, thanks, but I wish you could stay with us. No, thanks. Goodbye. Oh, the scavengers. How long would they last? Through the winter? And it was doubtful. There'd be no central heating. Even breaking furniture in the fireplace wouldn't keep them alive. They were like highly bred spaniels or Pekingese who walked the city's streets at the end of their leashes. They would die with the city a season or two later, pneumonia, accident. This sequence shows the critical potential of apocalyptic narratives. In this case, Stewart's not-too-subtle attack on post-war consumer culture. Isha's rejection of the Carsons is one example of Stewart's negative portrayal of domesticity. This is a recurring theme in the novel's Ecological Observations. Ecological Observation. Pedigree means nothing now. The prize, which is life itself, will go to the keenest brain, the staunchest limb, the strongest jaw. The champion boars will die in their well-kept pens, but the shoats will roam wild. In a few generations, their legs will grow slim, their bodies thin, their tusks longer. Man... They need nothing from men. In one of the show's ecological observations, a comparison is made between modern humans and the McClear's rat that once inhabited Christmas Island. In 1903, a new disease sprang up. The rats proved universally susceptible and soon were dying by the thousands. In spite of great numbers, in spite of an abundant supply of food, in spite of a rapid breeding rate, the species is now extinct. With its critique of softened city dwellers, Earth Abides feels like a precursor to dystopian science fiction films like Omega Man. The last man on Earth lives in a fortress. The last man on Earth always carries an automatic weapon and Soylent Green. What is the secret of Soylent Green? Stewart was correct that an increase in consumerism and a crescendo of urbanization were hallmarks of his era. But where he might have taken critical aim at powerful institutions or corporations, instead he levels a more reactionary attack against urban-dwelling consumers of popular culture, which he compares to doomed rats 
on an overcrowded island. The species is now extinct. The Carsons aren't the only survivors that Isherwood Williams discovers on his trip across the U.S. Just outside Guthrie, I saw a Negro tending his garden as if nothing had happened. He was afraid. He waved me on with a shotgun. More time is given to this episode in the novel, where we learn that there is a functioning community here, consisting of three people, all African-Americans, a middle-aged man, a woman, and a young boy. In the novel, Williams states that they spoke to him with diffidence, dropping their eyes, and he concludes that they're suffering not only from the shock of the catastrophe, but also from, quote, the taboos carried over from before it. Still, Williams has a certain respect for the group, and he admires that they're living close to the land, raising most of what they need. A similar sentiment is expressed on the radio show through a negative comparison with the Carsons. The Negro in Oklahoma with his heart to the land, he would survive. Milt Carson and his new wife, they were waiting for death at the card table. And yet, despite his admiration for the Oklahoma community, he leaves, continuing to drive east. In the novel, he thinks about staying and imagines that if he did, he might be, quote, a king in a little way. They would not like it, he thinks, but from long habit, they would accept the situation. It's troubling that the hero of this story can only imagine integrating into this community as a king. The unstated assumption is that race is an insurmountable barrier to collaboration. Ironically, it's Isherwood Williams who suffers from the taboos and prejudices carried over from before the pandemic. And we see clearly how this narrows his options for collaborative survival. After refusing to work with the communities that he finds in New York and Oklahoma, Williams returns to San Francisco alone. In the days that follow, the power grid fails and the city is left in darkness. The age of electricity was over. One night, Williams sees a light and goes to investigate. That's a nice car. I can pick up a better one on any street corner. Come on in. Thanks. This is Emma. How about some coffee? Sounds good. As quickly as he rejected the people he met out east, he accepts Emma and asks her to live with him. Will you come and live with me? I don't know you. What is there to know? That I like you, you like me? That we're both alone. She agrees, and there's a hurried wedding ceremony. We shall be together always. Ish and Emma become the founders of a new community, with Emma's role largely confined to that of wife and mother. Emma was warm and understanding, a good woman, a healthy woman. Soon there was a baby to be born. Their firstborn child marks year one as a new life begins around the simple problems of the nuclear family. This family-centered narrative must have resonated with audiences during the first years of the post-war baby boom, 
But to my ears, Ish and Emma's new life seems to reestablish what Betty Friedan diagnosed as the feminine mystique, and more recently what Lee Edelman has called reproductive futurism, the absolute privilege of heteronormativity. The second episode in Escape's two-part adaptation jumps ahead in time to year 19, when Ish is 51 years old and there are 45 people in the community. A stranger named Charlie arrives on the scene. I don't like him. He is gruff and hard. And his eyes... I don't like his eyes. It's not long before there's an altercation. Ish, what is it? I don't know. Don't go out there, Ish. Ish, Ish, he's roaring drunk. Where is he? Right outside. Yeah. Give me that gun. Stay away, George. Stay away. (gasps) George. He's dead. Ish, Emma, and two other elders who are described as the elected council of four vote to put Charlie to death. There's only one answer. Death. Death. You mean kill him? Murder him? No, it's not murder, Em. You and Mabel and Ezra and I, we're the government now. We've been elected. Council of four. There isn't any government but us. It's, it's not a matter of punishment. It's protecting the community from a menace, and that's what Charlie is. The deed is carried out, And by this act, we are told, the power of a new state is born. He gasped, slumped into his ropes, his mouth red with blood, his eyes swollen in death. The power of the new state was born. The episode with Charlie shows the biggest difference between Stewart's novel and Escape's adaptation of it. In the novel, the conflict with Charlie plays out quite differently and concerns a member of the community named Evie. Evie is described as a half-grown girl who was discovered grubbing for worms and snails. Williams talks about Evie as a kind of charity case and he callously states that because they don't want any, quote, half-witted children of Evie's, he has instituted a policy making her untouchable to the boys in the community. As a newcomer, Charlie doesn't know anything about the taboo on Evie, and Ish finds them sitting together, Evie looking at Charlie with rapt attention. Ish immediately assumes the worst, that Charlie knew what he wanted, and what he wanted, he wanted quickly. The confrontation arises after Ish tells Charlie to stay away from Evie, and he refuses to back down. The elders respond by locking Evie in a room and gathering the community to discuss their course of action. The children are fond of Charlie and seem quite content that he might bring Evie more fully into the fold. But one of the elders stands up and declares that Charlie is as rotten inside as a 10-day fish. By this, he means that Charlie is suffering from what he calls Cupid's diseases, venereal diseases. 
The shocked adults send the children away, and though they admit that their assessment of Charlie's condition is based on speculation, there's a unanimous vote to put him to death. Escape's adaptation of the Charlie episode eliminates the book's sexual themes and adds references to an elected council of four to make Charlie's execution seem more democratic. You, Mabel, Nezra, and I, we're the government now. We've been elected council of four. Those changes don't alter the fact that Isha's new state is undemocratic, unaccepting of difference, and built upon the repressive control of female sexuality. It's safe to assume that Stewart chose an ecologist as his hero because he believed that that kind of figure would be better suited to the post-apocalyptic landscape than the soft Milt Carson, the gruff Charlie, or the half-witted Evie. But to my ears, what comes across is Isha's unfitness for collaborative survival, and by extension, the limits of an ecological imagination that's misanthropic or uncomfortable with people. So, I'm of two minds about Escape's only two-part episode. On the one hand, the infrastructural and ecological disposition of Earth Abides is to be admired. But on the other hand, the story is to be rejected for the narrowness of its social imagination. Earth Abides doesn't help us to imagine livable collaborations that work across difference. It doesn't help us to appreciate and protect plural states of life, both in terms of ecosystems and human societies. Maybe what's missing from Earth Abides is a full sense of the word abide, which can mean both to reside or inhabit and to tolerate or put up with. Stories about life in the ruins need to mobilize both of those meanings to show us how to dwell on the earth in a spirit of tolerance and collaboration. Away out here they've got a name for wind and rain and fire. George Stewart's use of the, the word abide in his novel's title comes from a biblical passage that he quotes at the start of the book, Men go and come, but earth abides. To abide in this sense means to endure or to remain. Stewart's ultimate example of endurance in a man-dead world is an icon of mid-century infrastructure, San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge. When Ish first arrives in San Francisco after the pandemic, he thinks, The Bay Bridge a final monument to the greatness that had been mankind. At the end of the story, Ish, now an old man, wants to see the bridge once more before he dies. We're here, Dad. How? How does it look, Joey? Tell me. How does the Golden Gate Bridge look? It's old and rusty, but it, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. <laughs> Can you still see buildings across the water? Only a few, Dad. It's mostly overgrown. But the hills behind the city are beautiful today. Good. The Golden Gate Bridge becomes a test case for what will abide into the future. 
Bridges serve a similar function in Alan Wiseman's The World Without Us. Most of the suspension bridges within a couple hundred years, they're going to be down. In these two depictions of a post-human world, bridges are works of infrastructure that serve as memorials of Western civilization and figures of its tragic decline. These aren't isolated cases, and the Golden Gate Bridge has become a favorite site for special effects sequences in disaster films, like It Came From Beneath the Sea from 1955. Operations to all Navy personnel on the Golden Gate Bridge. You can do nothing more where you are. You're to abandon your post at once. X-Men, The Last Stand from 2006. Ben, what's going on? It's an earthquake. Pacific Rim from 2013. We've also been getting strange reports of something moving under the Golden Gate Bridge. And San Andreas from 2015. Suspension bridges work well as props in apocalyptic visions of the tragic fall of modern society. But they're less appropriate for stories about an ongoing life in the ruins. For that, they're too big too monolithic, and too technological. There's another iconic object in the final scene of Earth Abides, Isha's hammer. Joey, here. Here's the hammer. Yes, Dad. You're the new leader now. The hammer has always been the symbol. As opposed to the public, monumental, larger-than-life Golden Gate Bridge, the hammer is presented as an extension of Ish's individual body and sense of self. It's the only object that Ish keeps from before the disaster. My rock hammer resting on the top of the chest and it suddenly became the most important thing in the world to me. And it becomes a symbol of his leadership, taking on a quasi-mystical power for the younger members of his new community. Here, carry my hammer for me. No, it won't hurt you. And my hammer, here. No, I don't want to. Why not? It's magic. Ma magic? My hammer? The phallic, violent overtones of the hammer make it a variation on the sticks and spears and swords that take center stage in what Ursula Le Guin calls the killer story, which equates society with murder. Not only is Isha's new state born with the murder of Charlie, the power of the new state was born. But one of Isha's last acts is to show the boys in the community how to make a bow and arrow. I want to show you what I made this morning. What is it? It's called a bow. Guns won't be good much longer. The powder will get rotten. Guns will get rusty. You can hunt with this, kill animals for food. Yeah, look here, see? That's fun. Let me try. All right, here. How can we imagine an alternative ending for this story? One that helps us to think beyond the killer story, beyond the bridge and the hammer, and tell instead what Le Guin calls the life story.
what if Earth Abides had ended by shifting its focus to the resurgence of multi-species ecosystems in the ruins of the human environment? That had been one of Alan Wiseman's goals in The World Without Us. Because ultimately the book is not really about what the world would be like without humans. It's to clear humans away long enough so we could see how beautiful it could be and then figure out, okay, how can we hang around? How can we add ourselves back into this mix and be part of it? I extract human beings so we can see what it would be like if everything else that lives here wouldn't have to deal with the constant daily pressure that we heap on it. What if that were relaxed? How would everything else alive invade our spaces, take over, replenish or restore or recreate something new? That mission takes Wiseman to places like the exclusion zone around the Chernobyl nuclear reactor in Ukraine. More than 200,000 people were permanently evacuated after an explosion at the plant in 1986. And the result is a de facto nature sanctuary with a resurgent population of birds, wild boar, and wolves. We can hear the resurgent life in this radioactive wilderness in the sound artist Peter Cusack's project, Sound from Dangerous Places. We're listening to a stunning recording that Cusack made of a species-rich dawn chorus of birds in the exclusion zone. Cusack points out the paradox that dangerous places like Chernobyl can be sonically compelling, even beautiful and atmospheric. That paradoxical combination of ruin and resurgence makes a fitting soundtrack for new kinds of adventure without moving. And a new ending for Earth Abides could present the sounds of the resurgent ecosystems that might return to San Francisco Bay or the farm country of Oklahoma or Manhattan's abandoned elevated rail lines and rooftop gardens. So field recordings like Cusack's could add polyphonic dimension to the setting of the action. And a different musical score could provide the story with a richer emotional terrain. The music heard on Escape, which was arranged and conducted by Ivan Dittmars, follows the era's conventions for radio scoring, with orchestral musical stabs working as bookends to each scene. One of my goals throughout this podcast has been to show how different these stories feel when they're paired with contemporary sound art instead. Of all the shows I've talked about, I think Earth Abides needs this kind of sonic makeover the most. In Earth Abides, the heroic tone of those musical interludes feels particularly out of sync with the show's content. So instead of ending the episode like this... Men go and come but the the earth abides
An alternative ending would use a piece of music written by the American composer Philip Auberg. Auberg's piece is entitled Earth Abides and was inspired by Stewart's novel. He wrote the piece after traveling near his home in Montana, where he discovered damage wrought by a mining company to a pristine wildlife area where he had spent time as a child. When I saw the desecration, he wrote, I broke down in tears. His thoughts turned to Stewart's novel, and he composed a piece called Earth Abides in a single improvised take in the studio. I didn't change or add a note, he said. It seemed as though the earth was writing it. Auberg's composition has a solemn and graceful rise and fall that, for me, signals a mood of resilience and acceptance, of hope and mourning, that pairs better with Earth Abide's themes of collapse and resurgence than escapes heroic fanfares. As a final possible ending, not only for Earth Abides, but for this podcast series as a whole, let's zoom out, away from Ish and the Golden Gate Bridge, out beyond San Francisco Bay, beyond the Pacific Coast, to a view of the entire planet. I say a view of the planet, and our sense of the Earth tends to be visual, largely shaped by the famous blue marble image that helped to foster the environmental movement in the decades after Escape went off the air. Throughout this series, I've aimed to demonstrate that radio shows like Escape could foster their own sense of planet, though we might need to listen to them with an adventurous ear. But there's another, more literal way that radio gives shape to our planet. The radio bubble is the name for an expanding sphere of all the electromagnetic radio waves that have been sent from radio transmitters on Earth during the last century. The radio bubble is depicted in the opening sequence of the film Contact. We see an image of North America from space, and on the soundtrack we hear what were then current hits being broadcast on terrestrial radio. As the image pulls back, the audio track takes us backwards in time through broadcasting history. As the moon whizzes past, we know we're in the 80s when we hear the theme from Dallas. We pass Mars and enter the 70s with the song Funky Town. We hear the voice of Richard Nixon as we pass Jupiter's red spot. We move through the rings of Saturn and hear the theme from the Twilight Zone. Franklin D. Roosevelt declares war on Japan. 
date which will live. The dots and dashes of Morse code are heard as we leave the galaxy. And static fades away to silence. Over the course of the 10 episodes in this podcast, I've thought about the golden age of radio drama in relation to the dawn of the Anthropocene. The radio bubble is a place where those two phenomena intersect. In fact, the radio bubble might be added to the list of candidates for the golden spike that demarcates the onset of the Anthropocene. Remember that the golden spike is meant to indicate changes to the planet made by humans that would be discernible to aliens in the distant future. Just as fallout from atomic tests has left a layer of radioactive material in the Earth, the CBS broadcasts of Escape abide as a pattern of electromagnetic waves about 70 light years away. Back here on Earth, the adventure continues. Those words sound different now. Living in the Anthropocene means acknowledging that the coming and going of some men has brought into question how, or even if, the Earth as we've known it over all of human history can abide. Whether we like it or not, no matter where we live, human and non-human, we're all part of that adventure now. On a strange and dangerous planet. Let's abide together.
Making ESC was an adventure, and I had lots of help along the way. My colleague, Neil Verma, has been a huge inspiration and has offered me lots of invaluable feedback. One of the best parts of doing ESC was being able to interact with all the amazing sound artists you've heard in the series. I'm so grateful to all of them for kindly allowing me to use their sounds. Liam Davis was the ideal collaborator for the post-production stages of this project, and his keen ear, know-how, and endless patience have made it sound so much better. Mary Francis at the University of Michigan Press has always been a fantastic book editor, but with this project, she became something else, something like a combination of record producer and Hollywood studio boss. ESC just wouldn't have happened without her. I also want to thank my family. Frida has been incredibly supportive and kind, making space for me to record in our closet, listening to every episode, and giving me exactly the feedback and advice I needed when I needed it. I've been very lucky to have two in-house tech support gurus in the form of my sons, Jonah and Henry. I've always been so blown away by the digital music they produce, and I want to thank them for all their ideas, assistance, and suggestions. Any cool audio effects you've heard in ESC probably come from them. Finally, I want to thank you for listening.